I V M. International law isn't effective. Think of Donald Trump withdrawing from the Paris deal on climate change or the Iran nuclear deal. Think of Turkey's recent incursion into Syria or the Rohingya refugee crisis. International law has been unable to prevent or to provide solutions to these issues. Welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan. We talk about so much on the show every week, from deep diving into relations with a particular country or a particular issue. The interesting thing about international relations is that it's multidisciplinary. It borrows so much from every other field in the humanities or others and repays it with new scholarship. So in today's episode, we are going to be delving into the realm of international law. We're going to look at norms and rules and customs and how to work with national interests. We often talk about anarchy on this podcast. So how does international law deal with the structure of anarchy? How does all of this tie into power? On episode 19 of States of Anarchy, Shibani Mehta and I spoke about how it was to study international relations, the beauty of interdisciplinary study. And ever since I've come back to school in China, this is more true for me than ever before. My guest for today is possibly one of the most erudite people I've met on the subject. Amir Nayak is a non-resident associate fellow with the geostrategy program of the Takshashila Institution. He does wear many other hats and you may have heard him occasionally on the Pragati podcast which is also on the IBM network. Amir and I are going to talk about cooperating on the international stage when benefits are so unreliable. But before we dive in, let's hear from IBM podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, why the hell aren't you? It's about time that you did. We're IVM Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We also got some really great news about Paisa Vaisa. Anupam Gupta, our host, we couldn't be prouder of him. His show has won the award for the best business podcast at the Asia Podcast Summit. Couldn't be happier, couldn't be prouder. Definitely check it out if you haven't heard it. It is an award-winning podcast now officially. I also would like to thank our sponsors this week, Storytel and Intel. Sponsors make this possible, so please support our sponsors, tweet at them, tell them that you're happy that they're sponsoring the podcasting space. We're excited to announce our new show Storytellers and Storysellers hosted by Vineet Kanabar. Every episode he talks to two guests, one from the creative side and one from the business side of the entertainment industry. This week Vineet is joined by executive creative director of TVF and storyteller Saurabh Khanna and chief strategy officer of OML and storyteller Tarun Tripathi. Together they break down what goes into making a branded web series. Tune into new episodes every Thursday. On Cyrus says Cyrus is joined by Utsav Memoria. Utsav is the host of our new show and one of my favorites on the network Postcards from Nowhere. He and Cyrus have a really interesting conversation about Utsav's fandom of Cyrus. Also they talk a lot about about travel and Utsav's recent marriage. On the scene and the unseen Amit is joined by author Parvati Sharma. They talk about her book Jahangir an intimate portrait of a great Mughal. On Paisa Vaisa this week, Anupam is joined by Amit Kumar Gupta, Fund Manager, PMS, Adroit Financial Services. He talks about financial services and the scuttlebutt method of stock research. The Habit Coach completes 150 episodes on Friday. Make sure you tune in to celebrate this milestone with Ashton as he talks about bravery and how to use it in your everyday life. On Simplified, Narain and Shrika break down what behavioral addiction is and how someone suffering from it can be helped. On Golgappa, Tripti is joined by Manashri Soman. She is visually impaired who despite these crippling odds completed her secondary education and won the prestigious Balashri award from President Abdul Kalam. 
On Feeding 10 Billion, Ramya and Varun are joined by Michelle Adelman, founder of GoFresh in Botswana. She is harnessing the power of technology with sustainable business models to find innovative solutions to food security in Africa. On Boundless, Natasha reads poetry about the struggles she faced as she entered her 30s and long-distance relationships. On The Origin of Things, Chuck narrates a fascinating story about an adventurous young man whose life revolved around music and road trips. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Hey, welcome to States of Anarchy. Hi, Hamsuni. <laughs> okay, so you transitioned from studying psychology to studying international law. How did that happen? Uh... So I guess the connection is that both of the subjects are concerned with how people behave and how this can be understood and preferably controlled. Mm-hmm. Even within psychology, which is what I studied high school and college, uh, I was most interested in social psychology as a field and okay. even within that in things like stereotypes and prejudice and judgment and legitimacy. So basically, how do we form impressions about other people? Hmm. And then how do those impressions lead us to believe that something is either okay or not okay Hmm. to do, right? Um, And so the connection from there to studying, let's say, war and peace Hmm. should be fairly straightforward. Um, yeah, the behavior of states is very akin to the behavior of people sometimes because they're both rational actors. Yes, mm, you disagree? Uh, well, no, I mean, it's interesting because I agree. Okay. It's that, uh, yeah, so I think a lot of people approach rational actor models as if they uh, constrain the people in those models to some sort of very mechanical mm-hmm. behavior. And... Uh, I mean, at least if you've studied psychology, then you know that uh, it is possible to act rationally in pursuit of your interests as you construe them to be. Hmm. And that as you construe them to be is not a black box. It's a huge and fascinating area of research. Hmm. Right. So, yeah, people people do behave rationally. Hmm. But I standing on the outside looking in might find what you think of as rational as utterly irrational Mm. from my point of view and vice versa. Yeah, and that often happens particularly with people with whom you perhaps have different political opinions from, for example. You just don't see eye to eye with. You can't understand the framework for their rationality, but it exists. Yeah, I guess this is... So even when I was at grad school, I had classmates who'd come from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, people who'd done other social sciences, people who'd done history, econ, et cetera, people who'd done physics, people who'd done medicine. Um, what the three or four classmates who'd also done psych and I thought we had in common hmm. uh, was that you are more interested in figuring out those frameworks, hmm. right? You you start with the assumption, which is something you're taught in counseling, that uh, even when behavior is harming the person themselves, even when it's apparently self-destructive, there is a set of incentives and rationales that explains it. And if Mm. you can understand and shift those, then you can shift the behavior, right? And so you'll you'll never find a trained counselor, certainly, but even people who've dabbled in the subject Mm. using words like, oh, that's crazy or that's insane, Mm. Uh, except as compliments, um, you'll find that we we lean very heavily on the word maladaptive, hmm. which means 
there were good reasons for doing this. Okay. Those reasons are no longer good. <laughs> okay. But you're still doing the thing. It was adaptive. Mm. Now it's maladaptive, but you haven't figured out how to change it. Fair enough. So this is very interesting for me because a couple of weeks ago, I'd recorded with Shibani Mehta, who'd uh, studied international relations at Singapore. And you'd studied uh, IR in America? Uh, at Tufts in Boston, yes. Okay. So how was that different for you? Because we'd been discussing how um, studying IR that way was transformational for me as a student of journalism, for her as a student of economics, in just the ways we saw the world. But how was it for you as a student of psych? Huh. So um, I guess I was interested enough in IR and diplomacy and international law even before I went to grad school. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't call it transformational in that sense. Okay. Uh, but it was mind broadening, hmm. right? It it really pushed the boundaries of what I thought of as the the space of either international relations or international law mm. or the space of psychology and social psychology mm. within them uh, to much more than I would have been aware of before. Mm. Um, the one element that I think was transformational was this was the first time I formally studied gender theory in international relations, mm. which I'd read stuff before, but to actually have people who wrote those textbooks then teach you about their thought process while they were writing them, mm. right? I mean, the names will only be familiar to people who actually are interested in this subfield, but... No, but I remember when you were at grad school and someone who's come up at the podcast is also Cynthia Onlo when we were talking about gender in IR. And uh, I highly recommended Cynthia Onlo's uh, reading. And then I remember you put up, I think, a video or a photo of something uh, of Onlo speaking. And then I was just very jealous that you got to hear her live. Yeah, so Cynthia is phenomenal. Um, she was, in fact, my gender theory professor's PhD advisor. Okay. And she teaches at Brown, which is close to Boston as well. Mm -hmm. And so we had the good fortune of her coming by to talk to us every so often. Mm -hmm. uh, while I was at Tufts, my graduate school organized their first conference on gender and international affairs. Mm -hmm. And she was the keynote speaker for that first edition, which I'm guessing is the photo that you're yeah, uh, yeah, remembering yeah. here. And But it's not just Cynthia, who, again, is phenomenal. Hmm. It's people like Carol Cohn, hmm. um, who, Sex again, teaches in Boston. Sex in the world of intellectuals is one of her famous essays. Right. Uh, she is the editor of a book called Women in Wars, hmm. um, which is just required reading if you're going to do a gender and conflict course. Hmm. Uh, but it's a phenomenal collection of essays, right? Mm. And so between them, other guest speakers, and of course, the professors at Fletcher itself, mm. uh, Diane Mazrana is the professor I was talking about mm. for this gender theory course. Uh, and I studied memory and politics with Kimberly Thiden, okay. who was also, so she's a medical anthropologist by training, also mm. very much a feminist theorist. Mm. And it's fascinating because you're looking at how notions of gender affect notions of justice in post-conflict states, mm. which having just said social psychology, notions of legitimacy, <laughs> international law, international... I mean, this is just the perfect confluence mm. of uh, research interests for me, right? So I think I'd always been aware that it was a lens that you could apply while you were doing your work. Mm. And I think the transformation was post-grad school. I was like, no, it is the lens that you must apply while you are doing your mm. work. Fair enough. And that sounds 
fascinating. I, I think I will always be a little jealous of your time at Fletcher. But what were you studying there? Were you studying IR? So the the school is officially a school of law and diplomacy. Okay. Uh, the joke goes that the people who graduate are neither lawyers nor diplomats. Um, <laughs> but you're a lawyer. I am a lawyer. I went to law school before I went to graduate school. Okay. Uh, I'm a lapsed lawyer. I never practiced. Okay. Um, in part because the kind of law I'm most interested in is international law. Okay. Mostly, I studied conflict resolution, negotiation, mediation. Okay. Um, so there were about a dozen courses that you could take at Fletcher on those. And I think I took all or nearly all of them hmm. or at least audited them because some professors are nice and let you sit in even if you're not taking their class for credit. Hmm. Uh, I also studied development economics and impact evaluation uh, and monitoring and evaluation as a field because in general, you're encouraged to balance a theoretical or an area course with some sort of Mm. Uh, applied or technical skill. Mm. So there's people who do, for instance, GIS and mapping and how that can be applied. There's people who do uh, finance and investment. Mm. So I, I sort of took the development economics impact evaluation M&E stream within that. Mm. Uh, and I studied international law and transitional justice. All right. Okay. Here's a question. What is international law? There's a lot that's being said about it. It sounds super fancy. Uh, but there is a very sort of contested understanding of what it is, what it does. So in your opinion, what is international law? Hmm. So I can give you like the textbook definition as well. Okay. Uh, which is when a state does something consistently hmm. out of the belief that it is a legal duty. Okay. As opposed to just because it wants to. Hmm. Then that can be construed as the state abiding by international law. Okay. Uh, and then you can get into what are the sources of that belief that it has that obligation, right? Which could be an actual treaty hmm. that the state signed. With other states. The or... state, yeah. So the treaty in itself could be bilateral. It could be multilateral. Hmm. Uh, I think one of the reasons that the field sometimes gets confused is because there's sort of uh, you know, what you might call capital I, capital L international law, hmm. big picture, yeah, which is like the things that ostensibly there are giant treaties that every state in the world is party to, um, or there are certain things that are taken as customary hmm. that every state is held to, hmm. right, which consist of things like don't kill civilians. Okay. So it's, you know, it, it's not hard to see why that's considered a global custom. Hmm. Um, is that just customary or is there something in the Geneva Convention that actually tells you not to kill civilians? So the Geneva Conventions are an interesting case, right? Okay. They codify what was considered existing customary practice before, hmm. uh, which is to say today there is a legal basis for that. I mean, there is a codified textual basis for that legal obligation, hmm. but... If it was just a textual obligation, then a state that had not signed the convention hmm. and or a state that had signed but said, screw this, I'm leaving, hmm. would not be bound. But because they're considered as codifying earlier custom, hmm. the custom is still applicable, even if you're not actually party to the treaty. Right? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. But like that's like I said, that's capital I, capital L, hmm. big international law. 
global and, treaties. Yeah, and then you have things like the NPT, for example, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is signed by most countries in the world, right. with a few exceptions, which are, is, I'm guessing, also part of capital I, capital L. Yeah, I, I think most things in the space of uh, nuclear disarmament and, mm. uh, for that matter, even missile control, mm. uh, rise to the level of, like, big picture international mm. law. Um, but then there's all of the things that states do bilaterally, right? Like? Uh, you signed a mutual investment treaty agreeing mm. that like you would put no tariffs on a set of goods mm. between like India and one other. Like what is most favored nation status, for instance, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's that's technically not true. Most favored nation status is under an international agreement. Mm. But suppose you signed a bilateral treaty with or a country FTA. that... Yeah, a free trade agreement. Mm. Uh, so we're part of like a giant regional block that mm. has an agreement in itself. And then we signed a treaty with another country that says, even though you're not part of that block, we'll mm. treat you on the same terms. Fair enough. Right? Those kinds of bilateral treaties are also international law. Mm. Right? The, the The treaty itself is the source of the law. Uh, it's backed by a bigger piece of, again, capital I, capital L international law mm. called the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Okay. Which is the law about the law, as it were. It's the law that says when you sign a treaty, you will abide by it. Okay. Treaties are binding. Mm. Treaties have to be registered. Mm. The Vienna Convention is the one that says if you sign a treaty and keep it secret, mm. you can't claim it's valid. Ah. So as long as the parties to the treaty abide by it, cool. Mm. But if you try to enforce through international means a treaty that you kept secret, nobody else is going to play along. Yeah, of course, there is no recourse, right? Yeah. So there's, uh, there is, I think, broadly speaking, you can think about four sources, right? right. You can think about the big, the UN Charter, the Universal mm. Declaration of Human Rights, the Covenants, the Conventions, etc. Mm. Uh, including things like the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, mm which lay out the framework of international law, hmm. right? And what these are doing is they are defining states hmm. as actors with certain rights and certain obligations, Okay. right? Hmm. Uh, the difference between this and domestic law per se hmm. is that the obligation has to be voluntarily assumed. Okay. You can't impose onto a state an obligation hmm. that it is not willing to take on, All right. right? But having assumed it... Hmm. Then it's binding. Then you're actually supposed to do it. Okay. Fair enough. So if a state voluntarily signs a treaty, then in most cases, it's assumed in good faith that it will abide by it. Yes. And there are consequences if it doesn't. Hmm. Right. Those consequences could be written into the treaty hmm. itself. Uh, they could arise because the other state party then decides that they want to take it to some sort of you know, either the International Court of Justice mm. or the Permanent Court of Arbitration or some other tribunal. Sure. Um, or they could arise because uh, the state... So you signed a treaty, you're not performing your part. Mm. Somebody else is upset. Mm. That other state can then take countermeasures against you. Sure. Right? Like one example that I can think of is um, the spat over rivers, for example, between India and Pakistan right. and saying that they would take the Indus Water Treaty to the International Court of Justice. Right. Right. So that that would be uh, an example right. of this. So they could have gone with adjudication, yeah. of course. Uh, and by the way, so this is this is where like, you know, the line between international law and diplomacy is not straightforward. Right. Okay. Uh, 
yeah, you have a dispute over like river water sharing. Mm. You've threatened to take it to arbitration or adjudication. Mm. That in itself could just be a pressure tactic within the negotiation. You may never wind up in front of an adjudicatory body, right? You could just be saying, here are the terms that I'm willing to accept mm. in our own bilateral negotiation. And if that's not acceptable, well, then we're going to court. Okay. Right. So uh, out of court settlements are extremely common in mm. uh, international negotiations or in diplomacy. They're just not called out of court settlements because court is just one of the mm. many options that. And so, as I was saying, the other option is they could say, because you are in breach of the treaty, I'm going to take countermeasures. I'm going to impound some of your vessels or I'm mm. going to place these new uh, tariffs or restrictions or barriers or whatever, or I'm going to stop recognizing civilian visas, I'm going mm. to bar my airspace, whatever it mm, may be, mm, right? Which had they done those things otherwise, mm. would potentially be them violating a treaty unlawfully. Okay. But because they're doing it in response to your previous violation, mm. it's a legitimate countermeasure. And of course, the state that faces this is going to say, mm. No, wait, I was not in violation. It's your mm-hmm. countermeasure that's illegal. Sure. And I'm going yeah, to take a counter yeah. counter and so on and so <laughs> and forth. And that's right? how conflicts escalate. It's, it's countermeasures all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that is one source of international law, the big picture yep. treaties that exist. Yep. What are the others? Uh, the second, as I said, is just the bilateral stuff, right? Okay. The small, yeah. the states are making agreements with each other. Sure, sure. Uh, could be anything from a free trade agreement to like the US has military bases around the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Each of those is based on a treaty with the government of mm. that country that lays out a whole bunch of things, by the way. It lays out not just like here is the physical territory, but mm. also uh, which country's justice system has jurisdiction over these people in case of what kind of crime, mm. right? Okay, you, broadly speaking, you can be tried for things that have to do with civil offenses. Mm. Right. Like if a U.S. military person goes into a shop Mm. in Japan and like refuses to pay. Mm. Yeah, that's for the Japanese legal system to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, But you can't be tried for things that have to do with like official or sovereign functions. Mm. So all of the bilateral stuff. All right. Uh, The third is existing precedent and judgment. Okay. So there is an international court of justice Mm. that has at this point of time heard a great number of cases, Mm. both contentious cases, which means one country against another, Mm. as well as advisory cases, which means that the UN or somebody went to them and said, we would like to know your opinion on this. Mm. And this is considered. So the opinion of the International Court of Justice in a contentious case Mm. is considered binding only on the parties to that case. Yes, of course. Uh, It does not in itself create a new source of law or obligation for other states. But when there's then a question about Mm. what is the law on this, one of the places that you would go to look for clarity is if this question was presented to the International Court of Justice, what did they find? Mm. Right? And again, I'm using International Court of Justice as just like a shorthand for the four or five different arbitral mechanisms that exist. Yeah, but one example that comes to this is when Philippines took uh, China to the International Court of Justice Mm -hmm. over violations in uh, the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. And China said, no, we're not going to abide by whatever the International Mm -hmm. Court of Justice says, because this is our sovereign uh, territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then people went back to, oh, look at how India behaved when India and Bangladesh went to the International Mm -hmm. Court of Justice over the Bay of Bengal. Were we in the 
ICJ? We were in one of, I forget, were we in the International Maritime Tribunal? Well, we, went, the, we went somewhere we went for arbitrating somewhere the borders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they said, oh, look, India and Bangladesh are bited by this, but these countries in the South China Sea can't really figure this out. Mm-hmm. So th- that was one example that comes to mind for me, at least, when I can think of precedents. Yeah, well, so... Like, for better or for worse, China is not the country that you want to use for your example on compliance with international law. I was using India, but... uh, Yeah, yeah. So... I'm not sure we should be using India either. Fair enough. um, The ICJ can't actually enforce any of its own verdicts, right? It's on states to actually comply. And, you know, I I haven't done the empirical work on Mm. this, but my suspicion is that if you look at true bilateral contentious cases where Mm. like it's a treaty that was just bilateral and the ICJ is being asked to advise on like an interpretation of Mm. its terms. Mm. The countries will actually abide by it. Right. Versus something like the law of the sea Mm. or like territory, etc. Where there's known longstanding difficulties, tensions, Mm. objections, where even if you have an ICJ verdict, the country that finds itself disadvantaged by that Mm. is not likely to I mean, at the end of the day, how much does the allocation of maritime borders in the Bay of Bengal truly affect us? Right? Like, affects Bangladesh more. It's not going to be that hard for ONGC or whoever to go to the government of Bangladesh and say, cool, it's your water. Hmm. We have all the geological surveys. We know where the reserves are. Uh, if you would like to prospect here, mm. come, let's enter a partnership. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, the terms of that partnership may be slightly more generous to Bangladesh than they would have been if the ruling had turned out differently. Yeah. But, you know, when you're a large regional power, mm. you can afford to be generous with things like this to some degree. Sure. Uh, fourth source, before mm. we go further then. Uh, so we said big picture treaties, bilateral treaties, rulings of the ICJ. The fourth is custom. Okay. And this is the tricky one All right. uh, because it's never actually clear whether a custom exists and like how long it has been in existence and who mm. it applies to or who it doesn't. Mm. By the way, this is true of domestic law as well. So okay. there are very, very few areas in domestic law where uh, a judge is expected to decide on the basis of custom. Okay. But they exist. Say, for instance, family law in India. Mm. Um, and then the challenge is always to demonstrate that the thing that you are claiming is custom hmm. is in fact uh, oh i'm i'm forgetting my like law school definitions of this ancient invariant in practice uh, and like basically the fact that as long back as anyone can remember this is how this has been hmm. done by this group of people I think a year ago, there was this case where uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruled that a woman who was refusing to take care of her husband's parents was in violation of customary law or something like that. And then there was a huge uproar about the ruling. Yeah. But th- that is what the court ruled on the basis of customary law. Yeah. So I I'm, I don't remember coming across mm-hmm. this case. And now I really want to read like <laughs> how they came up with that decision. But yeah, in in the absence of any defined law, mm-hmm. or legal duty or obligation, there mm-hmm. can still be a customary mm-hmm. obligation. Okay. Uh, and this is where I was saying that uh, the two elements that I started answering the earlier question with, right? The state has to actually do it consistently mm-hmm. and they have to do it out of the belief that they have a legal obligation to do so. Mm-hmm. This is basically the things that constitute customary international law. And how is this different from precedence? Because for a precedent, there has to actually be a judicial body involved. Okay. Um, 
but in the in the normal usage of the word hmm. there aren't that much difference between the words custom and precedent they're, yeah, they're yeah. synonymous in english in hmm. that sense and uh, i mean i think that the story of the development of international law very much is that somebody does something novel then that is used as a precedent hmm. by other people who want to do it and then somewhere down the line people are able to claim at least half people are able to claim the state practice part of custom hmm. Mm. the the second half which is uh the latin word is opinio juris okay which, which is... is to say as i said in the opinion of the state that is doing it okay it is not a discretionary action it is a legal obligation mm. okay. right that's way harder to prove much harder right? to prove because uh, you would have to find a case where it would have been in the interests of the state to to break the law mm. and to say no but they abided by the law hmm. and the only explanation going back to rational actors the only explanation for them to abide by the law in a case where their interests are harmed hmm. is that they believe they have a, a duty or an obligation to uphold that law hmm. it's not just discretionary practice uh, fair enough now i have a doubt when you uh, look at the sources of international law you also on the world stage have like norms and rules and conventions and all of that right mm-hmm. uh, are these different from international law are they do they still come under the canon of ia international law i don't know so it's useful to draw a distinction between black letter law and like soft law and increasingly gray law okay so black letter law is the conventions and the treaties that are written hmm. right in the international law space when you say convention mm. it's uh, a very high bar okay right it's not it's not the same as saying in english this is conventional mm. no it means it's been codified and typically multiple countries or a majority of countries or mm. all countries in mm. the world have signed on to it right yeah, yeah. the un framework convention on climate change mm. for instance So convention is like the other convention on the law of the sea of course. Yeah. Uh so convention is like the highest mm. um the super convention the thing that every single state has signed on to is the charter of the UN. Okay. Of course. Uh below that are multilateral treaties. Mm. Below that are bilateral treaties. Mm. But all of these are written down. Okay. If you had a doubt about mm. like what is the obligation of a party here? Mm. You could go look at the text. Fair enough. And figure it out. Mm. Uh so that's hard law that's a black letter law. Hmm. Soft law is things to do with custom and practice hmm. as well as norm. Hmm. Right? So can we demonstrate by pointing to a document that you took on an obligation to do this thing? Uh not really. Can we demonstrate that typically under these circumstances here is how states have construed their obligations hmm. and behaved? Yes. Right? So could you argue that there were compelling reasons why you like the instance in which you behave differently is different from those previous ones okay sure i mean yeah, that's what yeah. a lawyer's job is mm. it would be easier to do that with soft law than with black letter law mm. because black letter law if there are exceptions they have to either be written into the treaty itself or there has to be a judgment previously here in the judicial sense a precedent mm. to say this exception should exist gray law is all of the stuff that is coming out of international organizations mm. notably the UN mm. the world bank all of the stuff that's coming out of the various engagements that those institutions have with governments the stuff that's coming out of other regional groupings etc 
where it's not at the standard of international law proper, mm. right? Yeah. But it is the product of discussion and negotiation and voting by states. Mm. So at a minimum, mm. it's not possible to argue that it does not embody the thinking and the beliefs of states, right? It's just that if you're a state and there's a resolution that I'm claiming establishes some legal principle mm. and you voted against it, mm. then all you have to do is point at that and say, I disagree. Yeah. And I have disagreed on the record when this came up. Mm. Um, so there's very little danger of the thing that you disagree with making the transition from gray law to custom and soft law. And even if it does, by the way, mm. within customary international law, mm. there is such a thing as a persistent objector. Okay. Right? So even if you genuinely believe that something has crossed the threshold into custom, mm. right? I have been from day one refusing to do that. Mm. I have refused to abide by that practice. Mm. So even if you say this is customary law and it binds everyone, my objection is every bit as ancient and invariant as that custom. Sure. So everybody yeah, else yeah. can agree to be bound, but I'm free of this, mm. right? Rare, mm. but sort of the logical construct that gives you custom also gives you the persistent objector. Uh, yeah, which sort of brings me to um, claims of historicity, which come up often on the international stage. Uh, and states just claiming that historically they have either owned certain territories or have had sovereignty over others or uh, have had practices through the ages that, in which they behaved in a certain way mm -hmm. and they claim that that gives them legitimacy to act in a certain manner. Mm -hmm. So does international law uphold this? Yes, with important caveats. Okay. Uh, the most important caveat being that the UN Charter, Article 2, mm. which is... Uh, so it has seven sub-articles. Oh God, no. uh, so I'm not going to recite. Yeah. But what Article 2 is does is that it establishes uh, the norm of sovereignty, territorial integrity, and non-intervention. Hmm. Right? So uh, whatever historic claim you want to make, as long as it is contained to what is recognized as, what is internationally recognized as your territory hmm. and does not involve... Uh, aggression against the territory of another state. Sure. Right? Like, uh, because there is a norm of non-intervention. Mm. Um, whereas, if you want to say that you have a historic claim to territory that precedes or predates the boundaries as recognized in the post-UN charter world, mm. uh, which does often happen, um, again, notably, this is China's claim for various parts of the South China Sea and even parts of India. Yeah. Um, not really admissible under, uh, certainly not under the existing system under the UN Charter. Mm. Uh, where the question you're talking about, like historical practices gets tricky, mm. uh, is the human rights regime, mm. right? So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh Convention on Civil and Political Rights, Convention mm. on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and the Commission on the Elimination of Discrimination of All Forms Against Women, CEDAW. Okay. Uh, these are sort of the, they're sometimes called the International Bill of Human Rights. All right. Uh, collectively, they all say near enough the same thing, mm. right? Which is that um, 
human beings shall not be harmed hmm. or deprived of their life or liberty or certain fundamental freedoms hmm. uh, and shall be provided the opportunities to grow and develop their potential hmm. there are many countries that haven't signed on to these or that have signed on with reservations because you can do that as well okay you can sign a treaty and say i agree with all of this except that women should be able to you do know, all of this um so india is a signatory to the international covenant on civil and political rights and international covenant on economic social and cultural rights i still don't know why they're called covenants hmm. <laughs> like maybe somebody wanted to give them an extra fancy name it, it sounds uh, cool <laughs> we have signed on to these with a reservation 2 mm. okay let's see if you can guess just guess the article number 5 1 one. 1 okay close right? <laughs> all right so if you're if you're asked to guess a number with no context the answers are always 0 or 1 okay. uh, there can't be a 0 article 1 article 1 mm. in both of these conventions mm. grants to people's the rights to self determination okay, okay. India's reservation hmm. is that this is applicable only as it relates to former colonial territories that is having exercised the right to self determination to gain independence from colonization hmm. the peoples who form that new entity do not have any independent right to self determination oh wow right okay. yeah because india's stance is if you grant this hmm. then you are potentially allowing future secessions hmm. right to which people who do support this language in the ICCPR ESCR etc say yes right we are allowing future configurations of nation states to exist uh based on boundaries or dimensions other than the ones that currently do yeah because states are semi permanent entities they're not permanent entities yeah but of course each individual state's interests are in making enough. itself permanent yeah, right and i'm guessing at the time that india did sign it it was very worried about secession so uh the original drafts of these i think date from like the mid 1950s hmm. and the original drafts article 1 did not say this okay article 1 said something of the order of uh, states shall strive to assimilate all peoples within them and provide them the same standard of human rights hmm. Okay. right so uh, we signed that with no reservations hmm. it was sometime in the 70 77 if i'm remembering correctly that the conventions were revised hmm. and the new article 1 came in that said we recognize the rights to people of self determination that was when india said no we we're, we're going to abide by the earlier one hmm. because if you think about it newly independent india did have any number of mini nations yeah uh hyderabad Mm. Goa, uh, Sikkim, Sikkim. Did we annex by force? Yes. Right. So Sikkim, Goa, Hyderabad, and one more. Junagadh, Kashmir. Junagadh. So, and even apart from those, mm. right? Uh, we had significant populations across central and east and northeast India, where India's government stated policy is in fact assimilation. Yeah. Right. Um, So you can understand why Indian government and diplomats were wary of recognizing in international law an obligation to recognize the right to self determination of those peoples. It's this interesting interplay, right? Mm. We recognize the human rights regime generally, mm. but we have issue with giving self determination to subnational groups. Similarly, there are countries that either have reservations or invoke previous practice 
to either not sign on to or to make exceptions to other things. The U.S. still does not abide by the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Uh, which, like, current political developments mm. in the U.S. aside, mm. right, where they are holding children in indefinite detention in, like, pretty horrific conditions. Mm. This, as far as I can tell, mm. came from certain states in the U.S., not wanting to give up uh, the prescription of some forms of corporal punishment within schools, oh. which oh. the Convention on the Rights of the Child would have made illegal. So their discipline systems within their schools incorporated hmm. some, and there was enough of an objection within the federal government system of the U.S. Hmm. that the U.S. never ended up ratifying this. You can imagine how much purchase a treaty like CEDAW has in Saudi Arabia, hmm. Right. Yeah, but yeah. also, if you had a treaty that, for instance, said outlawed capital punishment entirely, hmm. you might find that a number of states don't agree to sign on to that or like sign on to other principles within that. Hmm. But say we want to retain the right to use capital punishment because, um, you know, whatever combination of politics and custom says we should. Yeah, that makes sense. Um it also makes me realize that I've always thought of international law as sort of like one canon of work that exists and that people refer to. But uh, I think getting into the specifics of it is a lot more difficult. Yeah, there's, I mean, for every rule, there is an exception <laughs> is, the, is the story of international yeah. law. But it also makes me wonder, can you... Uh, list down all the sub-articles of Article 2 of the... Uh, what was the convention that we were talking about? The UN Charter? The UN Charter. Not off the top of my head, no. Okay. Well, good uh, to know. I'm, I'm just a little relieved because when you said you weren't going to... I was like, wait, do you have uh, them at the back of your mind? Uh, I have 2-4, maybe. But 2-4 <laughs> is the one that says you can't use force against other states. Okay. Uh, good. So that's an important one. Yeah, that is an important one. Anyway, going back to international law. So... As you know, this podcast is called States of Anarchy. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons I wanted to call it that is because for me personally, um, anarchy on the international stage is not something that you can ignore or take lightly. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is sort of the backdrop that I think most states have to contend to behaving the way they behave. Uh, how does international law deal with anarchy? Because there are contending views about how anarchy is perceived, but particularly with respect to international law, how does it function against the backdrop of anarchy? Mm -hmm. So this is also me assuming that anarchy is the prevailing condition of the world. Like I agree that I'm setting that down. No, no, I'll engage on that assumption. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll take that as a given as okay, well. Cool. Uh, but as we did with rational actor, right? Mm. I don't think anarchy is mechanical or a black box. Mm. Right? I think that multiple options and configurations of behavior are still possible within an anarchic frame. Hmm. It, there's a great paper you can read by a man named, so I, I always forget his first name. His surname is Wendt, W-E-N-D-T. Alexander. Alexander Wendt. Okay. Uh, 1992. It's called Anarchy is What States Make of It. Yeah. Right? And uh, it's quite a technical paper when you read it. But he's basically saying, you have people who argue that the structure of the world is anarchic. Hmm. The structure of the world is anarchic because ultimately there is no guarantor of security. Yeah. Right? So states have to maintain a certain degree of 
capability to use force hmm. internally against internal threats and externally to deter external aggression. Hmm. But if I start building up that sort of capability, then it forces you to have a sufficient counterbalancing capability. Hmm. This is the security dilemma. Hence, you get, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the anarchic but balanced world that hmm. we do. Went is saying this, whatever, security confrontation hmm. is just one of the possibilities hmm. because states have decided to behave that way, right? You could also have indifference. Hmm. You could also have states under the appropriate, let's say, geographic and historical circumstances, hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, before people discovered the continent of North America, hmm. What were the nations of North America in an international relations framework to the nations of Europe? Mm. Right. I'm taking an extreme example. Yeah. But you can have indifference even in conditions of knowledge or contact. Can you have indifference in the modern state system? I don't think so. Mm. Which is one reason that the paper is like a little technical and hard to yeah, read. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. an example is not one that jumps to mind from <laughs> like existing circumstances. Right? Fair enough. Uh, but that's an important point, right? Mm. That like even if I'm saying that these systems can exist... Mm. There is an actual world history. There is an actual path dependence that brings us to a place where they may not be as easily construed. Sure. But more importantly, hmm. it's not just that you can have confrontational or indifferent hmm. uh, configurations. You can have collaborative configurations, hmm. right? So even the people who sort of say, I mean, even people who endorse sort of the 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 international order as anarchic in its mm. strongest form mm. still recognize that there are things like alliances mm. right yeah. and they recognize that alliances come together for various reasons mm. stephen walt is probably one of the best people you could read today on yeah. the international relations theory of alliance formation mm. uh, he takes the balance of power concept and makes it a balance of threat concept mm which I like because it's bringing that element of perception rather than just this mechanical, oh, these guys have more military than those hmm. guys. Yeah, but it's the uh, idea of saying, you know, if uh, Britain has nuclear warheads, why is America not afraid of Britain? Why does it look at China or Russia and it goes into the idea that it what a country perceives as threatening to it is where its security implications come from. Including its history, including its relationships, including its alliances. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Went is making the point that while we have, especially in Europe and North America, which he is most familiar with at mm. that time, a number of cases where the confrontational dynamic has developed. Mm. There are also any number of cases where the collaborative dynamic has developed, right? The mere facts of like scarcity and the need to fight for security hmm. do not predetermine mechanically that you're going to end up in an anarchic security dilemma hmm. world. Hmm. Hmm. Right. So, as I said, again, with rational actor, yes, but people can rationally decide to cooperate as well with an anarchic world as well. People can states can rulers can sovereigns can rationally decide to cooperate in ways that make security balancing against each other, hmm. if not unnecessary, then at least a low priority, right? So, so one question that would come to mind, uh, just as a devil's advocate, is are these states coming together to sort of mitigate that security dilemma? Or are they collaborating because they actually have incentives and interests to do it? So Wendt's answer hmm. is that if you trace the people 
who argue that they are cooperating primarily because there's a security threat. Hmm. And you try and like trace that all the way down to, but where does this threat emerge from? They have like, they have no good uh, empirical explanation. Hmm. They ultimately pin it in human nature. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, the sort of the philosophical root of this is Hobbes. Hmm. Right? War of all against all. Yeah. Hobbes famously said the life of uh, man is nasty, brutal, short, lonely. There's five things. things. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, if you know the history of Europe, Hmm. at the time that Hobbes was writing, Hmm. it's not hard to see why he believed that to be the case. Hmm. Right? By the way... uh, Leviathan, the book, Hmm. is actually quite a hopeful one. Like he's not writing from the point of view of, and this is why we're all doomed. Hmm. He's writing from the point of view of the creation of a stable order out of the system is possible. Yeah. Right. Which again, he was, he was writing at the peak of some of the worst violence in Europe. I think like the 30 years war was just coming to an Hmm. end. Um, which is a level of violence that you don't see repeated till the world was. Mm. As in, if you look at deaths as a percentage of population, you have like the plague, mm. these wars, and then the world wars. Right? So, like, to some extent, people who read and theorize and build upon writers like Hobbes mm. or Rousseau today, mm. take their writings as some sort of like philosophical truth or assertion devoid of historical context. Yeah. And no, they were writing in a specific historical context. They were also, by the way, all unmarried men Hmm. with no family obligations whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, Voltaire had children and gave them up for adoption. You know, again, feminist theory might lead you to ask, how did this affect their worldview? Uh, Uh, I'm not going to say this is only the idea that they were single uh, and thus were able to devote so much of their time to lamenting about the world uh, in one sense. No, but like, I mean, look, I'm caricaturing, right? <laughs> but course. like, can you have, can you have a family hmm. where you are devoting yourself, among other things, to the well-being of your spouse and children hmm. and still devise a philosophical theory of no, but the world is a cruel, uncaring, unfeeling place where everybody like is out for themselves and nobody cares. You have a living example of effective altruism in your life and in your house. Right? I, okay. I did say I'm caricaturing. I, but caricaturing, still. I agree. So I was reading this article recently about how um, a lot of the times the labors of men are possible because there are women around them who make sure that there is food on the table mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. children are taken care of and they don't have mm-hmm. to worry about households except to sit at their fancy wooden desks mm-hmm. and write every day. Also caricaturing. But I don't know if you can judge like men historically from a moral point of what we construe as gender relations today. I'm not saying it wasn't problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm I'm trying to make an even broader point, right? Which is that We've gotten to the stage where we're arguing that the structure of the world order is a given because there's a security dilemma because that is in the nature of men. Yeah. Like, and your your and best the, explanation for that is in the nature of men sure. is coming from men who had a certain slice of experience. Yeah, yeah. Right? I completely agree. I used to have this classmate who would, uh, at any point in class, he'd be like, you know, Machiavelli said this or Sun Tzu said this. And 
I have won the argument because I have quoted all these Clausewitz type people. Very Indian college thing. But yeah. Yes. At, at two. At, at, at one point, because we we're caricaturing, I got very pissed off. And one day in class, I was just like, Mirshaima said a monkey holding a puzzle is still a monkey. <laughs> I was just bored <laughs> and very angry at this point in time. Then he was like, Mirshaima said that? when. <laughs> I said, Oh, Google it. I'm sure it's there somewhere. You made that up, right? Just, just checking. Mirshaima okay. never said anything. I mean, he could have said anything. I made that up. <laughs> if you said Kissinger said, then you would have gotten away with it. But uh, no, I mean, look. Let me just try to pull this back, right? Yeah, yeah. What distinguishes an anarchic system from some other form of order hmm. is, as Hobbes did argue, uh, the recourse to some ultimate authority that can bring in that external order. All right. Right. So, what is the what is the Leviathan? It is the the military device that can overawe all other forces. So that, as an ultimate assertion of authority, the sovereign can just say. But do as I say, or you will be destroyed, right? Yeah. Um, but the fact that you're in an anarchic order does not preclude the existence or the emergence of any number of practices, habits, norms, customs, rules, mm. once they start getting codified laws, mm. that say they don't ultimately have this sort of external source of authority to go to to say abide by this or else. Hmm. But the longer that they have existed, the longer that they have in fact been in practice, the more entrenched they are, the more expected they are. Hmm. Uh, There are costs to violating them. Hmm. Right? Now, if you get to the stage where it's a treaty or a law and it's written down, then those costs may well be written down as well. Right? Right? If it's something like the non-proliferation treaty, even if it doesn't specify costs in terms of like, you know, you will face sanctions to the order of whatever, Mm. the cost is implicit because it's, well, then other states start building nuclear weapons as well. And we're that much closer to nuclear holocaust, right? Yeah. Um, And even if it's not that stuff, even if it's things like the International Bill of Human Rights that Mm. I was talking about. States derive their own legal regimes by reference to these things, right? Yeah. So there's a there's a concept that uh, uh, Lant Pritchard talks about, although he uses it to criticize rather than as a as a positive thing, <laughs> All right. uh, because it's Lant Pritchard, of course. Um, whom, if you have not heard talk, you should. Please Google him. Please YouTube he's, he's him. He's fantastic. <laughs> um, but he he talks about this thing called isomorphism. Okay. Right. And isomorphism is uh, basically things assuming the same shape by mimicry. Hmm. Right. A lot of legal regimes today are governed by isomorphism. Yeah. Because once you say that there is a certain set of behaviors that is seen as expected or appropriate or hmm. legitimate at the global level, hmm. you know, that's not to say that every state will then start abiding by those behaviors. But that the range of actions and the range of even domestic regimes that states will consider and that political actors within the states will consider hmm. will start to resemble and, you know, the the range of options that they have hmm. shrinks. It yeah. starts getting closer and closer to the global sort of norm. So it's not a 
you know the the truly long answer to like how does international law operate in an anarchic world hmm. is by presenting itself as the default the path of least resistance the hmm. path that states can adopt and know that they are going to have the least trouble working with hmm. the least costly maybe maybe uh, under certain circumstances the least costly and under, hmm. under other circumstances there may be a transition cost involved sure. but the future expected benefits from making that shift are still good hmm. And so like as long as you allow the leaders of states in your theoretical model mm. to have sort of the mental capacity to think about things like this to think about future contingencies in fields other than just security mm. it's not that hard to go from there to and they're going to arrive at a certain set of customs and practices mm. that they want everybody to follow mm. you know not because this is how we build a better world mm-hmm. but because it's just more convenient yeah yeah um, that makes sense um amir this is interesting it's and at some point i want to bring you back in again to talk about international law in depth because there are different schools there are different models and there is so much there's a universe in which we can situate these podcasts mm-hmm. about but my last question to you is reading What books or what resources would you recommend for people who want to dabble in international law, who want to read more about it? So, can I broaden the question a bit because uh, I think international law in itself is a relatively technical field? Sure. And so there's like there are classics in international law as well, right? But they tend to be textbooks. So they tend to be like commentaries and treatises mm. on there's a phenomenal for instance online resource that the red cross maintains mm. which is uh, commentaries and practices on the geneva conventions okay uh, as somebody who's interested in international humanitarian law like i find it fascinating mm. but if you don't find yourself drawn to that technical area for some reason mm. like i don't i don't know why you would ever navigate to it all right but let's let's try like the broader sort of international relations international sure. law yeah, yeah. stuff right most interesting thing i read recently is a book called fog of peace mm. uh by Jean-Marie Gehenno hmm. uh was the former head of the UN peacekeeping like the department of peacekeeping affairs hmm. and it's it's broader like it it is a history in some ways or a recap of like how peacekeeping has evolved okay uh but it's broader it's about hmm. these questions of like what does it mean to try and intervene in hmm. conflicts and like bring about peace hmm. through this giant bureaucracy that is the UN mm. in a world where there is an increasing proliferation of of uh, internal conflict uh that's one mm. one of the best books i think that you can read on the broader sort of uh what are states when do they use force what etc 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 so in the in the clausewitz sunzu tradition yeah, yeah, yeah. is uh, the utility of force okay uh by major rupert smith i'm going to say british Bye. military officer mm. fantastic so read this in fact if you always had like i must read art of war or mm. like i must read clausewitz like on your list but never got around to it mm. uh, because by the way those are also dry books to read super dry uh, uh, art shastra yeah, like yeah. unless you're very into texts uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean clausewitz spends a heck of a lot of time on like logistics and supply lines mm. right which I fully understand why a military strategist <laughs> must know yeah. but it's not that interesting to mm. me. Rupert Smith is the guy who is like summarize them mm. and then put this in the context of modern warfare. Okay. 
right? His his headline thesis at one point is that we're going from uh, war among the states to war among the people. Oh, okay. Right? That's... And that means that you're going to see a lot more of, let's say, street-to-street urban fighting mm, mm, mm. of the kind that has been seen in Iraq, has mm. been seen in Syria, uh, was seen in Sri Lanka even, mm, although mm, not mm. city streets. Um, so really enlightening book. And I'm not, I'm not sort of by inclination a security studies or strategic studies guy, mm. but I found this really impressive. Mm-hmm. Political theory... Mm especially around peace and violence, mm. uh, anything you can get your hands on by Charles Tilley. Okay. The book that I read and enjoyed the most is called The Politics of Collective Action. Mm. Uh, but I've also constantly been recommending an article of his. Uh, Do you know what it's called? Or where yeah, it's? yeah. It's called um, uh, Warmaking and Statemaking as Organized Crime. Mm. Uh, Tilly, uh, I think it's... It, 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 it's now a chapter in a book called Bringing the State Back In, uh, but you should be able to find just the article sure. as well. Tilly is looking at the history of war fighting in Europe okay, and looking at how states as a principle of political organization evolved as a means to achieve economic efficiency to feed into the war machine. Hmm. And that therefore the states that were able to achieve the most administrative and economic efficiency were more likely to do well in war and hence are the states that we have today. Mm. Right. And so his his line in the article is the state made war and war made the state. And then there's like Robert Bates. um, Again, book I've been recommending to people Hmm. left, right and center. Uh, The book is called When Things Fell Apart. Okay, A play on the famous novel. Yeah. Right. Bates is looking at sub-Saharan Africa Hmm. and the emergence or breakdown of political order there. Okay, It's a slim book. Hmm. It's like. Uh, 170 pages, maybe. Okay. Which for like the topic area is amazing. Hmm. This is the book that my thesis advisor gave to me when I went to him sort of like the first draft of my thesis and said, I'm interested in looking at how peacekeeping affects the idea of sovereignty. Hmm. Like how can you have forces from random other countries in your country fighting for you and claim you're sovereign? What's going Mm -hmm. on here? Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay. Here, like you, you sound like you need to read about political theory and sovereignty, mm. which you haven't. So here's a book. Read it. Mm. If you find any of the references interesting, read those. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it took me ten months. <laughs> right. Wow. Like it. It took me to the point where, no kidding, I extended a semester. I wow. took. I had the option of taking an extra semester to just write my thesis, mm. and I did. Because I had so much reading at the end of reading Bates and his references. Mm. So I was like, wait, I need to actually get through this and sort this out and like work with it. Um, But he provides a very simple theory of how political order can form Mm. just based on the existence of a central political power group, a Mm. peripheral political power group, and the concentration or distribution of resources between them. So it's just a three variable theory. Very elegant. Um, I haven't read it. I will add that to my list. Yeah, Scott Strauss, Mm -hmm. uh, Making and Unmaking States. Mm. Again, Sub-Saharan Africa, which just if you're doing empirical political science work, Mm. the maximum amount of like state formation disorder, etc. is there, followed by Yugoslavia. Okay. So that those are the cases that people tend Mm -hmm. to end up doing a lot of their work on. Yeah. Strauss sets out to answer the question, when do mass atrocities happen? So when do things like genocide or ethnic Mm. cleansing happen? Right. And like basically does this 
as close to empirically possible hmm. by looking at states that have the same risk factors before the event hmm. and then seeing where it evolved and where it didn't. Okay. I would say probably the best theoretical political science book of the past decade. All right. Um, one of my professors at Fletcher, so I should plug, uh, Alex DeWall. Hmm. Uh, the book, he actually has two recent books out. One is The Real Politics of the Horn of Africa. Okay. So, as you can see from my readings, I end you up... You do a lot of African I end up reading. Study. So, I didn't go into grad school saying this is what I would do. Mm -hmm. But I somehow ended up doing Somalia, Sudan, Syria. That mm -hmm. sort of became the axis okay. that I studied. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because there are many political similarities. Mm -hmm. But of course, lots of different things happening vis-a-vis -vis the, like the, the trajectory of conflict and politics there. Aren't but it? all three are still in the news. Yeah, that's true. So real politics of the Horn of Africa is basically looking at, as opposed to capital P politics, mm -hmm. looking at uh, how money and power flow on an interpersonal level mm -hmm. and how that affects it. Aren't so it? I said Bates's three variable theory. Mm -hmm. Alex has developed it in ways. The other book that he has, I haven't read this yet. Okay. It's on my list is called Crimes of Famine or something like that. Famine right. Crimes. Okay. But it's basically a, a history of famine and starvation and how starvation has been used in warfare. Oh, wow. Um, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of, so like the books that I found myself most reading, honestly, mm -hmm. like this is, I'm still talking theory, right? Mm -hmm. The books that I most found myself reading actually and were uh, Anthropology in Conflict Affected States. Okay. Right. So people who actually went and did fieldwork, meeting mm. people who were living in conflict or post-conflict situations. Uh, Cynthia Enloe's also done this. Yeah, sure. Emma's War, I think, is one of the more recent ones where mm. she did Iraq and Syria. Yeah. But there are just so many great mm. books in this genre, right? So Carolyn Nordstrom, Shadows mm. of War, yeah, which is a multi-country study, mm. Uh, but is looking at, say, for instance, like she has a chapter where she's literally just living with children who have been orphaned by the war, who are living on the streets of uh, Luanda in Angola. Mm. Right. And it's just it's it's eye opening because who has written about war from the perspective of the child living on the streets of mm. the post-war country? Mm. Right. Louisa Lombard has a book on the Central African Republic. OK. Uh, Marielle Debo's uh, Living by the Gun in Chad. These are all okay. the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, those sound lovely. But I think, unfortunately, we will have to end today's episode. Do you have any last one book recommendation? Must read. Cynthia Enlow. Okay. Bananas, beaches and bitches. Yeah. <laughs> Ask okay. to start there. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Amaya. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Amsni. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. Thank you for staying with us. If you want to read more about international law, then Amea has a whole number of resources for you, and I've attached those in the episode description. If you want to delve deeper into some of the topics that we discuss on States of Anarchy, whether it's public policy or foreign policy, I suggest that you check out some of the courses at the Takshashila Institution. There are varying lengths, so you can choose depending on your interest, and you can attend classes from home. So do check those out. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at Hamsini H on Twitter and at States of Anarchy on Instagram. You can listen to States of Anarchy, not only on the IBM podcast app and website, but wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday.
Hi, I'm Sariyu Natarajan. And I'm Alok Prasanna Kumar. And we are the hosts of the Ganatantra podcast. On this podcast, we speak to academics, social scientists, journalists and activists to find out what's actually going on in Indian politics. On this podcast, we stay away from personality politics, intrigue and gossip and instead focus on the data, research and analysis that drives all this. So tune in to the Ganatantra podcast where new episodes are out every Wednesday on the IVM podcast app, website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. नमस्ते मैं हूं सौरभ चंद्रा और मैं प्रणय कोटस्थाने जब महफिल खत्म होते-होते दरवाजे के बाहर पुलिया के ऊपर हम दुनिया भर की जटिल समस्याओं को सॉल्व करने में लग जाते हैं तो हो जाती है पुलियाबाजी अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलियाबाजी में जहां प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आईवीएम की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफार्म पर हर दूसरे हफ्ते